I want to change the paint industry and will because this is a very easy transition to make. But there's no point having a good product that no one's heard of or no one wants to use because it's not pretty. So we're that vital bit in the middle that says, you know, trust us, we're the cooks. You're going to get a lovely dish and actually I'm going to tell you which meal it's most appropriate for. We'll help you as much as we can because Again, unlike anyone else in the patent industry, we're an interior design practice at heart. So all of those colours we sell are colours we use. They work. Mm. You know, it's not because they've got a sheepdog on them or because it's the autumn fashion or whatever. Hello, I'm Carol Annett from Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the House Guest Podcast, where I chat with experts from the world of interior design and decoration, the people behind the houses, hotels, shops and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. If you listen on the Entail app, there's more information and images on the projects and people mentioned. And if you're doing up your own home, hopefully you'll pick up some tips for yourself. Today I am sitting actually in the country and townhouse offices, which is unusual for us, with Edward Bulmer, who is an architectural historian, interior designer, colourist and eco-warrior, as opposed to a warrior, definitely a warrior. He has had a helping hand in restoring and decorating many of England's fine country houses, including Goodwood, Althorpe, Chequers, Chevening, Hampton Court, to name a few. Edward, welcome. Thank you for having me, Carol. Thank you very much for coming to visit us. Is there a historically important house that you haven't stepped inside? When I was doing my homework on you, crikey, I mean, literally you seem to have had a helping hand in most of the important houses of England. Inevitably, the answer is yes, because the wealth of houses that we have in this country is actually unsurpassed uh, in terms of the, the survival of them, complete with contents and families. So there are half a million listed buildings, for instance, and in my career, I think I've worked in 50. <laughs> so, <laughs> you so know, do the few. maths. <laughs> but um, there are some, it's unusual now for the great houses, which have pictures in, works of art and fine furniture, which is something I'm very interested in, not to be open to the public in one way or another. And sometimes it's buy a ticket at the gate. Sometimes it's be a member of an organisation which will manage to negotiate an open day. But there will be countless other ones. Um, and when I get any inquiry, would I, would I be able to come and look at this job in this house? The answer is always yes. <laughs> and, and there is never a charge, obviously, <laughs> even though one will go for a day and probably give quite a lot of advice in the course of the day. I'm jolly nosy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best way to be. So you studied history of art and then dabbled in advertising. Yes, OK, let's be honest. I had a nepotistic opportunity because my family's business was in cider making. And when I left university in 1984, it was quite a large business then and it had some major uh, advertising agencies supporting uh, its products, and I went to the one that was uh, looking after Strongbow, which was our, our, our biggest brand. And I lasted a year there in a role that was euphemistically called Empty Suit, um, <laughs> but was actually an important interface between the client and the, and the awkward creatives. 
I think I'd felt that it would be a more creative job than it was, and I could see that it was actually a good job, which many people would give their high teeth to do. And but not you. Not me. So I took an opportunity to move on really as soon as I felt I wasn't running away. So I'd, I'd done a year and I'd proved myself perfectly well and, I, and I'm sure I can now reflect, had learnt some useful stuff. But I, I then went to work kind of freelance doing research and met a fabulous man who I still miss a lot called Jervis Jackson Stocks, who was head of the historic soul, if you like, of, of the National Trust at that time but was a great enthusiast and loved to see young people come along who shared his love of, of buildings and, and his motivation for, for kind of scholarly inquiry. And so I worked for him literally leafing through the archives of the Sackville family who owned, uh, until they gave it to the National Trust, uh, a large house in Seven Oaks called, called Knoll, uh, which is a fabled early house with a lot of what's known as perquisite furniture. That was... Um, How do you spell that? Uh, perk, in other oh, words. Okay. I've never heard um, of that. If you were Perquisite. If you were, as the Earl of Dorset, I think he was, was master of the wardrobe to the monarch, when the monarch died, you collared the lot. Oh, which was a perk. It was a perk. That's not... I there love that. So there's a lot of this royal furniture, very early, at Knoll, and it's beautiful and incredibly well preserved for its its date and just you know the upholsterer's dream beautiful trimmings and beautiful lines and, and this house has just history oozing out of its walls and I found out a certain amount that hadn't been known just by methodically going through the papers and I had another job going up to the coldest house in England called Nostal Priory near Doncaster Another National Trust house. Chippendale was the local boy, and so it's full of Chippendale furniture. And Robert Adam remodelled it. And unusually, he sent all his... We're used to seeing very beautiful coloured renditions. He actually did working drawings, as you would expect from an architect these days. And at Nostal Priory, all of those were about 150 of them. They'd all been sent up to the house for the builders. And they were all still there in... In the muniment room, uh, in in a bit of a muddle, and so that was my other job was to was to go through those. So that kind of really consolidated my understanding that inquiry is is really important, and doing your homework is a very necessary preparatory step to understanding a building, and then knowing what's appropriate and what's inappropriate in terms of remodelling it for family use, which is what really fires me up. And your your parents had bought a, a Georgian yes. house and, do, and done up, so you'd lived through that process with <laughs> them. Is that safe to say? Indeed. And they were breaking the mould because my family lived on the edge of Hereford and their business was on the edge of Hereford. And the business and family life kind of intertwined fairly seamlessly, I think. And as they grew the business, they and were able to... And this was a side, they side, of business. side of business. They were able to build themselves houses. But they all chose to do so kind of next door to each other. And my father decided 
that he wanted to restore a house. And this was in the 1950s. And so, as you can imagine, it wasn't what the family did, but they all thought he was mad. But it wasn't expensive to buy one. Mm. But, of course, doing them respectfully was expensive and took time. And there are only so many building companies that you want. And so, from what I've read, the story goes that he invited David Milanarik to come to the house. But mm. in, in the, did he sort of think that that might be with a view to you then working with him? Was he hopeful? I think what happen? happened, strictly speaking, is that David was quite a sort of darling of the press. And I think Esmond, my father, saw an article in, in the Sunday Times magazine or whatever. And obviously it spoke to him and he asked him to come to our house. But they had had it restored and decorated by my mother, basically, for... 10 years by then. And I think he felt that David Milanarik would respond to the building sensitively, but would be would bring a little bit more of an edge of comfort and contemporary feel that wasn't kind of delivered just by buying furniture from antique shops. And so he, I mean, that, that must have been um, a fascinating time for you, watching somebody like that work. And then did you go and work with him? So when I left the, the advertising company, David came to stay and we went off to the local town and, and he could just tell by the way I was noticing things and taking him to, you know, the only antique shops worth looking in and this sort of thing, that I was interested. And I said I was unhappy with the advertising world and da 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 and that I'd only got a temporary placement. And so he offered me a job. And, and I think that he has been incredibly good at giving opportunities to young people. And so lots of people have been through his studio. Some have stayed forever, um, but lots have been through and, and they've stayed there long enough either to have learnt something useful or perhaps in my case, because I, I, I worked a year there, to have something on my CV that resonates. It's a, it's a descriptor of my values, my attention to detail. remember the first building that you worked on in your own right? Yes. Well, it was first equal, really, because it was Althrop and it was... It's not a bad starting point. Uh, no. Did you get the phone call from Lord Spencer <laughs> no. directly? <laughs> no. In those days, Hello was, was new enough to be kind of intriguing. And what they did do in the early days was go to, to good houses. And I enjoyed looking at the articles on good houses. Yeah. And they had a piece with Charles and Victoria and Charles kind of explaining the enormity of his inheritance and what it meant to him. Not as a house for which he had family feeling, that wasn't in doubt, but he was clearly uncomfortable with, with what it had gone through in the previous and, uh, 10 years. It's probably about 1989, 1990, because you're talking about Victoria Lockwood, that was his yes, wife, wasn't it? indeed. Yeah. And so I said to Emma, my wife, oh, gosh, look, there's a man that needs some help. <laughs> and that's a place that's, gosh, you know, so deserving of getting sorted out. And she said, well, why don't you write to him? And I said, well, you know, one doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, that's not English. Anyway, she pestered me, and, and I did. And blow me down, he wrote back and said, yeah, come and talk to me. And, you know, respect. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and what I didn't know 
before I got there was that he had already had some advice from Tom Helm, which I bring up just because he started Farron Ball. So. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and I worked with Tom at Spencer House when I was working for, with David Milanoric, and we've had a kind of a... That's fascinating. We need to mention at this point that you do have your own paint company, Environmentally Natural Paints, Edward Gilmer Natural Paint. Um, But I also, I was going to just go back, because we did podcast with Lord Spencer, and he was talking about the restoration of Althorpe, and he didn't give you a plug at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, and and in fairness, you've met him, and you know that he's he's scholarly, and he has a dry wit, and we bonded on that. And I also felt very strongly that Althorpe was not an easy place for him, but it certainly wasn't an easy place for his wife. Yeah, he was very open about that. Yeah. And I felt that that needn't be so. Yeah. And that I knew that the, the architect who'd remodelled uh, the ground floor rooms, frankly, you could forget the top floor, it's a huge house, was one who actually was at an, working in an area that began to understand comfort. Yeah. So how, I mean, gosh, that must have been an enormous project, this sort of just finding a starting point. Mm. Yeah, 500 pictures, all of which we rehung. And wow. it took 10 years, I think, all in all. And we just worked through it, starting with the rooms that would make most difference to family life, and then getting them a set of entertaining rooms that they would be proud to use and comfortable in. The great thing was that in the whole project, we bought four sofas, nothing else. Did you really? Everything else I found in the attics or the stables, just by spending time there and looking around. And of course, what that magically did was undo all the kind of new bling that that Rain Spencer's redecorations had imposed on the house. And we were able to deformalize it and give it some history and establishment at the same time. I wanted to talk a little bit about your own house. So you mm. live in a Queen Anne house in Herefordshire, and have you put a lot of work into that? Yes. Does that mean it's a yes. going process? I wanted to live in Herefordshire more than anywhere else, and my wife um, brilliantly has facilitated it. And the advantage of that ambition is that houses in Herefordshire compared to the general market are cheap. It was not derelict, but it, I would describe it as benign neglect, and it had been lived in by one lady with no cultural aspirations, if I can put it that way, for 20 years. So we didn't have that dispiriting situation of having to undo lots of money having been spent, <laughs> like at Althrop, but we had an awful lot to do. So there was electricity in the form of one plug per room on the ground floor only, and ditto radiators. The kitchen had no running water at all because it was the old Herefordshire farm type. And did you have, because you have three daughters, were they, had they all appeared at this point? Because that must have been quite tricky, I was going to say, having no no running water and children. No, and, and, As soon as we moved in, a friend who was working for the National Trust locally said, I'm coming to tea, which is lovely. And he said, you do know you've got a historic water garden around the house. And we knew there was a pond in front, but we'd never 
thought in those terms. Oh, yes, he said, and you can get a grant for restoring it. So we rather got swept along. And it was the first thing we did. And we did discover that there was a historic water garden and the local council did have a grant. And we did restore it or begin to restore it. And Emma is right when she says she got running water in the garden before she got it in the in the kitchen. <laughs> but she does now have it in the kitchen. We now have it in the kitchen. And we have made, through our alterations, we've made the house comfortable. That's been our aim. But we've also done it in a fairly um, architectural way. It, it's, uh, as you say, it's, uh, it's Queen Anne or it's William and Mary. It's grade two star, which puts it in... 12, the 12, top 12,000 of the half a million listed buildings. So it's important, it's important that we look after it appropriately. And that's been a joy. And it's turned out to be a fantastic showcase, particularly now for our paints, because we can just repaint room after room. Perfect. And you now have your paint business in the cow shed. Basically. Yes, it is. A, it's, a, it's a cottage industry in the house. Most wouldn't call a cottage, but it that's the colloquial term for where we're at with it. I mean, it sounded like you had plenty going on anyway. Yes. You didn't then have to decide to build a paint brand. No. So what start, What kicked it all off? Well, I became an eco-warrior. And that's very much with an O, a warrior. Yes. Or are you slash A warrior as well? Uh, transitioning. <laughs> I want to do it in an appropriate way, though. So I'm not yet a building damager or a um, barricade manor, um, but I am prepared to support anything that I think will help politicians feel that it's appropriate <laughs> to address these issues. And what happened with the paint was that I was just doing my day job and I was working at Goodwood and Janet March, Lady March as she then was, said, please, Edward, can we use materials that are healthy and environmentally responsible so i.e yeah. heritage i mean that well that i go? thought to myself e easy because yes that basically describes everything i use because i'm using heritage appropriate materials so they're nearly always natural materials you know cotton wool silk wood and so i you know happily acquiesced and it was only really when i went through the inventory of materials we were using that I stopped at the paint and thought, hmm, I don't think I know enough about this paint. And I had been buying paint from a small supplier in Wiltshire, Potmolan, but the founder died and the business hibernated for a bit. And I just switched to a conventional developer's paint because I had been told that it was more breathable than others presumably because developers like to paint the plaster before it's dry. And so that's what I was doing. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a look at that. So I'll turn the tin round, look on the back, see what's in the paint, make sure it's eco-friendly and found that, I mean, not just the brand I was using them, but actually every other brand had no information of that sort on the back. So I started to ring the, the sales forces, the technical teams, and they were not forthcoming with any meaningful information. So then I did what I guess you guys do when you want to get information. You start digging, don't mm. you? And, and of course, with the Internet, there is a lot of information to be found if you spend a little time doing it. And what started me off was a World Health Organization report last century, admittedly, 
the summary was that painters had a carcinogenic profession, 40% more likely to get lung cancer. That is not okay. Yeah. And so... It seems such a benign thing to do, painting walls. Yeah. And so I wasn't okay with that with myself, but I certainly wasn't going to be able to tick that box for my client. And what I uncovered, of course, was not just that it was a lot of chemical use that were leading to these health issues, which ranged from sensitivity through reproductive issues to carcinogens. It was also the penny dropping that even though paints were now calling themselves eco-friendly, how could they be? Because ultimately the important part of paint is the, is the binder. That's what makes the, the materials in the paint stick together and makes the stuff stick to the wall. And that binder is universally made from petrochemical-derived polymers, the science. And so I talked to my decorator, Hespen Jones, brilliant traditional decorators from Yorkshire, use them on every project. And he said, well, you want natural paint? I can, I can get you some. So we used this natural paint, came from a small company in Germany, and I did a pretty colour. And the client was thrilled and we talked about the, the ethics and what I discovered and she was even more thrilled. And I just looked at these walls now painted and thought that looks so different. That really looks lovely. You know, like I can tell the difference between every interior designer can tell the difference between leather and vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're making these little nuanced subjective judgments that allow us to not pay five pounds a square meter we'll pay 50 or 500 so we're not rational in our in our purchasing we're driven by a whole range Uh, budget is always one but actually it's very often visual and so i saw this difference and i loved it you know the, the 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 surface was sort of immutable and and I, I learned that that was because it, it, it used pigment, particle pigment, not synthetic dyes, and that the binders um, didn't have this kind of plasticizing effect. So, of course, something had happened for me. All my next projects were going to be using this sort of paint. And so I started to talk to the supplier and said, you need to have a ready-made range of colours. Surely more people should be able to buy this paint. And he agreed and he got me to mix them and I mixed them. And long story short, and after three or four manufacturer changes, I have come full circle and I source my basic paint bases from another company in Germany. And we have a range now of, you know, 100 plus colours. So it's like anything, if you really want to know what you're putting on walls, look on the back of the tin. Correct. And I think that it's odd that paint isn't required to do that. Most of what we buy now, your delicious cookies, which we which remain untouched. into yet. Well, I can't. <laughs> I was brought up not to talk with my mouthful. They, they publish their ingredients. The, you yeah. know, the clothes you're wearing, ingredients is published. The coffee you've given us, the ingredients is published. Your shampoo, you know, the ingredients are meaningless, but they're published. And why not paint? And I think that the answer is, is because it's not mandatory. So why do I publish the ingredients? And I publish them, A, because I think they're a jolly good marketing story, mm. which is unusual because if you go on, say, the Farron Ball website, they'll say, for marketing reasons, we don't publish our ingredients. So it's a completely 
opposed positioning, I accept that. But most of all, I want the person that decides whether my paint is right for them to be you, you the customer. And I don't know whether you have sensitivities, I don't know, you know whether you're vegan or whatever it might be. So you can only work that out for yourself if I give you a proper and full declaration of the ingredients. Mm -hmm. And anyway, it underpins our proposition, which is that we're using ethics as part of the mix. And so it will, it will happen. Whether it will become mandatory, I don't know. But I think a lot of people are making products in the world today, today with a growing realization that their production model is not sustainable and that we'll switch from just concentrating about how you market something to a realization that you can only market something that has some has some soul, has some content, has some um, useful properties. And, and we overlook nature for no very good reason. We do it in agriculture, we do it in chemistry. But nature is taking sunlight and creating extraordinary cellular structures of all sorts. And so why aren't we interested in that? You know, why are we just interested in extractive materials that can be battered with high heat or energy or whatever. Mm. So these guys are so onto something. So when it comes to Herefordshire, you're actually you're adding the colour. So we add the colour, yeah. But if you don't sell colour, you don't sell paint. Yeah. So I want to, uh, uh, yeah, okay, forgive me, but I want to change the paint industry and will because this is a very easy transition to make. We're selling our paint at the same price as premium brands. That's extraordinary. Isn't it? And it hasn't taken an enormous company with enormous labs and resources to do it. It's just taken a decision on their part not to spend money on advertising, marketing, dissembling. It's just on product development. But there's no point having a good product that no one's heard of or no one wants to use because it's not pretty. Mm. So we're that vital bit in the middle that says, you know, trust us, we're the cooks. You're going to get a lovely dish and actually I'm going to tell you which meal it's most appropriate for. We'll help you as much as we can because, again, unlike anyone else in the patent industry, we're an interior design practice at heart. So all of those colours we sell are colours we use. They work. Mm. You know, it's not because they've got a sheepdog on them or because it's the autumn fashion or whatever. Yeah. It's because they work, because they'll make you happy because their tonality is good, they'll work with all the other fabrics I know you'll be using one way or another. And that is so important to give you a harmonious interior. So to buy that in a tin of paint mm. is actually a, not a big ask, I don't think. Mm. It's been absolutely fascinating and I could talk to you for hours. Um, there are so many, I mean, I love, I love the idea that you know, actually, it's you talk about the the soul of the paint, but and you're it's the soul of the houses and the and there's you're obviously a very good soul wanting to kind of bring bring all that together and uh, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Not at all. That's a lovely observation, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. 
Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or Entail, where you can also find images, links and notes to enhance each episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe.